They say that for a madman every day is a holiday, but they also say that insanity has seventy gates. It is true that many of the mad are happy, as you can see by the idiots of this town who sit on the walls and grin and piss themselves, but I know that the gate through which Ibrahim travelled was the gate of unconquerable sorrow, and that his mind remains a cataract of grief. I think that back in those days many of us were maddened by hatred because of the war with the Greeks, and in all honesty I include myself, but Ibrahim was the one among us whose mind was disengaged by love. Ibrahim blamed himself. The peculiar thing is, however, that nothing would have happened to Filiothei at all if other things had not been happening in the great world. So it is my opinion that the blame belongs more widely, not only to Ibrahim, but to all of us who lived in this place, as well as to those in other parts who were bloodthirsty and ambitious. In those days we came to hear of many other countries that had never figured in our lives before. It was a rapid education, and many of us are still confused. We knew that our Christians were sometimes called Greeks, although we often called them dogs or infidels, but in a manner that was a formality or said with a smile, just as were their deprecatory terms for us. They would call us Turks in order to insult us, at the time when we called ourselves Ottomans or Osmanlis. Later on it turned out that we really are Turks, and we became proud of it, as one does of new boots that are uncomfortable at first, but then settle into the feet and look exceedingly smart. Be that as it may, one day we discovered that there actually existed a country called Greece that wanted to own this place and do away with us and take away our land. We knew of Russians before because of other wars, but who were these Italians? Who were these other Frankish people? Suddenly we heard of people called Germans and people called French, and of a place called Britain that had governed half the world without us knowing of it. But it was never explained to us why they had chosen to come and bring us hardship, starvation, bloodshed and lamentation. I blame these Frankish peoples, and I blame potentates and pashas whose names I will probably never know, and I blame men of God of both faiths and I blame all those who gave their soldiers permission to behave like wolves and told them that it was necessary and noble. Because of what I accidentally did to my son Karatavuk, I was, in my own small way, one of these wolves, and I am now burned up by shame. In the long years of those wars there were too many who learned how to make their hearts boil with hatred, how to betray their neighbours, how to violate women, how to steal and dispossess, how to call upon God when they did the devil's work and how to commit outrages even against children. Much of what was done was simply in revenge for identical atrocities. But I tell you now that even if guilt were a coat of sable and the ground were deep in snow, I would rather freeze than wear it. But I do not blame merely myself or the powerful, or my fellow Anatolians or the savage Greeks. I also blame mischance. Destiny caresses the few, but molests the many, and finally every sheep will hang by its own foot on the butcher's hook, just as every grain of wheat arrives at the millstone, no matter where it grew. It is strange indeed that, if you should wish me to tell you how one young Christian woman died by accident in this unremarkable place, you must also be told of great men like Mustafa Kemal, and little men like me, and you must also be told the story of upheavals and wars. To speak selfishly, let me say that what remains with me and hurts me after the memory of the cruelty and unreason has been laid aside is the pain of having maimed my favourite son, Karatavuk. I will always be pained by the manner of his wounding because I brought it on him by my own hastiness, 
and this after he had managed to survive eight years of war unscathed. Since those times of whirlwind, the world has learned over and over again that the wounds of the ancestors make the children bleed. I do not know if anyone will ever be forgiven, or if the harm that was done will ever be undone. Enough of this, however. The story begins, and he who slaps his own face should not cry out. The Imam visited Filiothée on the day of her birth, which occurred in the early summer of the year 1900 by the Christian calendar. Filiothée was the great beauty of the town, and in her short lifetime this caused her more difficulties than it brought compensations. The birth was, I suppose, unexceptional. The mother had drunk from a bowl engraved with verses from the Koran, and in which further verses had been dipped for extra assurance, and had slept with a cross on her belly for at least a week. In addition, a woman had gone for Mirimar Effendim in good time. Mirimar Effendim was our midwife in those days, and no one was more deeply versed in the arts of birth. Her mother and grandmothers had been our midwives since the first counting of time, and all of us had arrived safely thanks to them. Filiothée came into this world when the southern wind was bringing lewd thoughts and insomnia from Arabia. I remember this because I myself was unable to sleep partly because of the restlessness of my wife and children upon the floors and divans, and partly because of the dogs outside that had set up a howling in unison with the shrieks of the mother of Filiothée. Even out in the courtyard, wrapped in my cloak, I lay sleepless, looking at the stars, and so, finally, I decided to walk about the houses. I was unable to resist walking towards the sounds of the parturition, and I passed the window of the Christian schoolmaster, Leonidas Effendi who was writing furiously by the stinking light of a wick floating in a bowl of olive oil. This teacher was a bad character, stirring up trouble. In those days all of us spoke Turkish, but those who could write did so in the Greek script. This Leonidas, however, was one of the ones who was saying that the Christians should speak Greek and not Turkish. He forced the children to learn the Greek tongue that to them was like chewing stones and he stirred up resentment in them with stories about how we Osmanlis had taken the land from the Greeks and that the land was rightly theirs. But I should return to the matter of Filiothée. It so happened that I was outside her parents' house with many others of the curious when the screaming stopped and the delivery was completed. We heard the triumph and relief in the voice of Mirima Effendim as she cut the umbilical cord and cried out, God is great, God is great, God is great. It was our custom to name every female child firstly with the original name of the first woman who was with Adam in paradise. And so when she called out that she named the child Hava, we all knew that the baby was a girl. The moment after Mirima Effendim cried out, I swear that the whole night was changed. The dogs ceased to howl, the moon broke out from behind the clouds, there was a scent of saffron and olibanum in the air and a bulbul began to sing in the plane tree in the centre of the maidan, where the old men sit in the day. I was contented that this new life had begun so well, but at the same time I confess that I could not help reflecting that everything that is born is born to die. I was standing there wondering how long this person would live and how it would die, when the father, whose name was Caritos, came out of the house to breathe the air of relief. I approached him and tapped him on the shoulder, giving him a cigarette that I just rolled in order to smoke it myself. Salam alaikum, I said, handing him my tinderbox. And upon you be peace, he replied, and then added, almost as if you were worried by it. It's the prettiest child I've ever seen. That'll be trouble, I said. The women are hanging Bibles and Korans and blue beads and cloves of garlic all over the place, said Charitos with a wry smile. 
but I expect it'll be trouble nonetheless, Nazar de Meshin. God preserve us from the evil eye, I said. Later, after the muezzin had intoned the azan at daybreak, and everyone had done their prayers, a rumor began to spread out from her parents' house, like the ripple of a stone cast into a pond, and soon there was another crowd of the curious who had gathered there to see her, to bring gifts and wish the mother a happy freedom, but also with the intention of marveling at the reported prettiness of the child. Philothay's family was a Christian one, but at that time we were very much mixed up, and apart from the rantings of a few hotheads whose bellies were filled with raki and the devil, we lived together in sufficient harmony. A rich bed had already been set up in the Salamluk, and the mother, Polixene, was propped up against cushions, smiling as she held her little finger in the baby's mouth in order to console it for the temporary want of a breast. I had dressed in my best clothes, I brought a gold coin, and I brought some tea flavoured with bergamot that my wife had grated herself. I duly inspected the child and exchanged further pleasantries with Charitos, the father of the child. God bless the mother's milk, I said, wondering all over again how a woman can go through such hell and then be pleased about it afterwards. We are going to call the child Philothei, said Charitos. Meaning? It is Greek, replied Charitos, and I believe that it means beloved by God, or something like that. You will have to ask Leonidas Effendi, the teacher who is such a keen speaker of Greek, I said. He will tell you what the name means. No, I will ask the priest, declared Charitos, who, like me, had no time for stoop-shouldered opinionated bookworms who did not even know how to harvest an apple. Charitos turned his weary eyes on me and asked very seriously, Iskander Effendi, will you do me a favour? Will you take a rag and tie it on the red pine for me? You want me to make a wish for you? Yes, this child of mine.